Just before we get the December extra edition of the Judgecast going, here's a little question for you to ponder while you're having Christmas lunch: Can you escape from Ian Morrison, the asteroid Ian Morrison, of course, not not Ian Morrison who does the night sky? In fact, what is the largest asteroid that you could jump off? This month, we won't be giving you the answer at the end of the show because I think there's quite a lot of calculation involved here. Have a little bit of a scroll on the back of the envelope. So we will give you the answer next month. The Judcast. It's a Christmas cracker, with David Alt, Ed Boyce, Stuart Lowe, Nick Rattenbury, and Roy Smiths. The Judcast. December Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the last edition of the Jodcast for 2007. It may be last, but it's certainly not least because we've still got a packed show for you just in time for Christmas. On this issue, we have all of our feedback from the last couple of weeks. We have an interview with Dave Jauncey and Ken Kellerman about the discovery of quasars. We've got a report from the Illuminate Art event, which happened at Jodrell Bank Observatory, and that's by Roy Smiths. And of course, we have Ask an Astronomer. But I've been going on for far too long, and Stuart and Nick are joining me. So, hello, guys. Hello, Dave. <laughs> hello. We thought you were never going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Without further ado, we should move on to the feedback that we have received from various people, from various listeners. So, Stuart. Yeah, we had a review on iTunes this month from Yankee Astrobiologist, who says, "Keep on jodcasting in the free world," and they they really like the jodcast, saying it's a sixty to ninety minute assault on your astronomical senses. Oh, we like that. Yes, and they said, "Don't forget your cup of tea at the end," which I I quite like. A nice reference to Douglas Adams there. So, just one review from iTunes、uh, the the last two weeks. Yes,、yeah, so people, please do if you listen to us via iTunes, do review us. Let us know what you think. And Dave, you've got the listener feedback. Before I start the feedback, I have to put my hand up and admit something. I used the wrong noise reduction software. Last issue, and so that's why I sounded like I was in a tunnel with a Fisher Price microphone. <laughs> <laughs> so I hold my hands up and say, "Yes, that was me." I am sorry, listeners, and thank you very much for writing in and telling me that I sounded awful. I got comments about the compression as well, but that may have been related to your sounding like you're in a tunnel. I think it probably was. Thank you very much to Ian Muller for pointing that out, and John Rayner as well. As our listeners are no doubt aware, we are playing around with the audio settings and how we we output the Jodcast to see what suits people. It would appear that we can't please everyone all the time, though. But、mm. we do our best in general. I think、uh, I think you'll agree that、uh, at least you can listen to us in some way, in some format. And、uh, if there's anything remarkable about the audio output which we didn't manage to catch in post production, then do let us know. Another thing that John Rayner said was that we had an Antipodean interviewer who was very good and would like to, and he would like to hear more. So Nick, you have fans. Hey, hi fans. <laughs> and thanks also to David Burke and Corey Phillip for your feedback as well. We do love reading your feedback, even when it says that the intros and outros mystify you. And if you have any feedback, please do send it in via the website at www.jodcast.net or via iTunes. So onto the main interview then for this issue. Stuart, you met with Dave Jauncey and Ken Kellerman. I did. It was during the Manchester Modern Radio Universe conference back at the beginning of October. 
So here's what they had to say. Okay, I'm joined by Ken Kellerman of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory and Dave Jonesy of the Australia Telescope National Facility. Um, welcome to the Jodcast. You were both involved in the early days of the discovery of quasars, I think. Can yeah. you just tell us a little bit about that? Well, more, more from the outside looking in, but Dave, why don't you start? Okay, mostly from the periphery. Um, I was at Sydney University and Cyril Hazard uh, lived uh, down the corridor. Uh, and it was sort of interesting because Cyril and John Davis had moved into, actually it was the room next to what used to be the ladies' toilet. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's easy to, to get to know people like Cyril. And um, watching the perspective from someone from Sydney University and using the CSIRO telescope at Parks was interesting in itself. Uh, and so there were a lot of personal things. There was a lot of um, antagonism, in fact, between the various institutions at the time, which in a way I think has confused the situation. Uh, so um, most of my knowledge came from working on cosmic rays at the time, but seeing what was going on in Sydney University and also knowing most of the people or many of the people over at CSIRO. So it's exactly as Ken said. It's an outside-looking-in perspective but we both know most of the protagonists at the time. Uh, I guess we knew them fairly well. From the astrophysical side, I think it was a, it's, a, it's a superb experiment. At the time, there were a number of problems that people were trying to address, and one of them was there was this so-called cl- so class of radio stars. A lot of the work, uh, for example, at Jodrell, uh, with the ever-increasing interferometers, had shown that there were a bunch of sources that we- really were very, very tiny. Um, they weren't the big bright galaxies and so their identification was much more difficult because you can identify a big galaxy with a poor position but for something which is very tiny which nominally could have been a star I mean that's what they, they were called at the time you need a position that's accurate to locate just this star and not the faint star next to it so you really did need arc second quality positions right. and there were uh, a variety of ways going on to do that. One was at Caltech, which is where Ken was, and that was with the early Caltech interferometer. And so with the interferometer, they were trying to measure positions. Now, the the difficulty with doing that is you're sitting on the Earth, and so you're in a terrestrial reference frame, and if you want to locate an object on the sky to an arc second, you've got to be able to relate your reference frame to the celestial reference frame. And that was difficult to do because all it was identified was this bunch of big, fat galaxies. And so the positions coming out of Caltech uh, were typically what? Seconds of arc. Seconds of arc. Few seconds of arc. Three, three to five seconds of arc, yeah. Um, yes, but there were, there were obviously some sources that the errors were much larger. And one but of those... But there were some that were much smaller. Yes. Why don't you get but, on to the okay. occultation? And okay, I'll get on to the occultation. But um, Cyril Hazard, Cyril... Uh, you'll read in Sir Bernard's books, etc. Cyril came with uh, Hanbury Brown from the Navy, and one of the nice things he started doing at John Bank is occultations. Now that solves all of the problems at once. So this is using something like the moon. This is using a telescope tracking the edge of the moon. Now the moon, the position of the moon and the moon's limb is known with high precision in the optical reference frame because that's where you see them. I mean, you know, you look up there at occult stars, you've got the measured positions of stars, so you know exactly you can locate that limb, even with all the irregularities, uh, with a precision of an arc second or better. And, and it's in the right reference frame. 
And so what Hazard was doing at Jodrell, he'd done a couple of occultations of strong sources, but none of the very, very compact, you know, none of these point radio star style sources. And then Hazard was working with Hanbury Brown on the Brown Twist Interferometer. Uh, he was working up at Narrabri, and Hazard, through Hanbury Brown, had made a connection with Taffy Bowen, who's, who was the chief of the Division of Radio Physics at the time, to get access to the Parkes Radio Telescope. And uh, the reason for making this push was that there were clear predictions, even given the poor quality of the position at the time of 3C273, that there was going to be a bunch over a space of, I think it was 61 through 62 or 63, a bunch of occultations of this very intriguing, because it was one of the strongest sources in the sky, was unidentified, and it was essentially a point source. So what does the number 3C273 mean? Where does that come from? It's about the 273rd source in the third Cambridge catalogue. The 3C is third Cambridge. I don't want to go into all the de- I mean, some sources get decimal points. No, no, not in the 3C catalogue. <laughs> not in, okay, there was 3C. Three three it's the 273rd source in, in the 3C three three catalogue. Catalog. Yes, but the 3C catalogue was revived. Yeah, okay, <laughs> that's a separate issue. And so uh, there, are, there are some accounts, in fact, in the literature that say this occultation just happened to take place while they had the telescope. I mean, you know, that is blatantly wrong because if you were not working for CSIRO, you just simply didn't get time on the Parkes telescope to point it around in the off chance that you were going to get occultations. So, you know, this this was set up well ahead of time. And as far as the astrophysics is concerned, there were a series of occultations that took place. And the nice thing about a series of occultations is it's like an interferometer in if... Kellerman's nose is the radio source, the moon passes like that. So I get a one-degree strip image of Kellerman's nose, and then if it's, that's going in, and when it comes out from behind the moon, it comes out at a different angle. So if you get a series of one, two, three, or four occultations, you not only get intersections to give you the position, you can actually make an image. Right. And you can make an image if it's a strong source with a resolution sub-arc second. You know, the order of a tenth of an arc second, that, right, that, that is, sort of level. It's incredible for a radio telescope, which... At, in 1963, I mean, you know, this is 45 years ago. Yeah. It's, it's difficult now people routinely, you know, measure a position with tenth or a hundredth, and we're down in a milli-arc second now. In those days, it really was very different. And so Hazard got this series of occultations... And he, I mean, you know, there's, there's a whole set of legends that go with that that are associated with parks and hazard and all the rest of that. Leaving all of that aside, I mean, that's, that's, there's a lot of fun stories. But leaving that aside, the beautiful thing that came out of Hazard's occupation was he measured the position of this point source. And he also found, as with the various occultations, there was this radio object. And so at the time... Um, Minkowski was in Australia and Minkowski because of the relationship between um, John Bolton because John Bolton had been at Caltech had a 200 inch image of the 3C273 region and so when they put the radio image on not only did the position actually with very high precision agree with the star also there was this optical jet that stuck out the side Right, so there's a radio jet and an optical jet. A radio jet and an optical jet, plus this essentially perfect positional coincidence. So this is suddenly very, very different. Even with a few arc-second positions, um, you worry whether 
it's that star, or you know, there's an awful lot of blank field, or there's you know very faint objects, and so you know this in a sense was is, it's really nailing it down. This had to be the identification. There were absolutely no equivocation. And Ken, very very quickly, because you've got you want to go to the next session. Um, can you just tell us about your involvement? Yeah. Well, I think my my good friend Dave <laughs> uh, overstates the. Um, the lack of accuracy in the interferometer position measurements. Prior to this 3C273 position measurement and optical identification, there were three or four other radio sources which had been observed with the jodrell bank interferometers to be very small, which did have accurate radio positions from the Caltech interferometer and had optical identifications. It was 3C48, 3C286, and 3C147, I think 3C196. They were all, prior to what they, uh, this occultation, had been identified with stellar-looking objects. The question was, what were they? And they had complicated optical spectra. Uh, in one case, of 3, 3C48, which was the first radio source identified with what we now call quasars, had a very complicated spectrum. Jesse Greenstein, who is an expert spectroscopist at Caltech, uh, had analyzed the spectrum in great, or thought he had analyzed it in great detail, identified many of the lines with uh, multi, uh, highly ionized states of, of uh, very, rare very rare elements. He had a paper written, that was about the, I guess he had submitted it to the Astrophysical Journal. And then came the 3C273 occultation and position, and the breakthrough was that 3C273 had this simple spectrum that, well, it wasn't as simple as just looking at because it took even Martin Schmidt some time to realize that it was a simple hydrogen spectrum that was redshifted. So it was the simplicity of the 3C273 spectrum and the realization that it was highly redshifted that was the breakthrough. So the the spectrum of these objects look very different to stars? Yes. Uh, And then, of course, yeah, and and then they went back and looked at these other sources, having realizing that there might be highly redshifted lines, and then going back and looking at it, and then being able to identify the lines with highly redshifted, um, highly excited uh, sta- states of uh, things that were known to exist in, um, so, in so really nuclei. There were, there were two problems. I mean, I've stated the optical position problem. Ken stated the spectroscopic problem. Now, as somewhat of a counter to that, right at this sort of time, I think it was 3C296, was a galaxy a compact galaxy, but a galaxy that had been identified with a redshift of 0.4 based on... 295. 295, okay. And so there's, you know, there are statements by some of the protagonists saying afterwards what they thought before and thinking, you know, yes, the world should have been prepared for high redshift objects. And so, in a sense, you could say there was pre-information that this was a high redshift object because Greenstein's but the metal block was they were the stellar and they looked like yeah, stars. Right. That's right. And, and, you know, this, so many things in, in, in science in, at all levels, the last veil, if you like, of the seven to go usually resides in people's heads. I mean, you know, yes, you can build the instruments. Yes, you get the observations. But if you're not thinking correctly and, you know, these, just, just looking at it this way, these are lovely ways of solving problems because there was the spectroscopic problem which finally got solved beautifully by Martin Schmidt and you know that opened the last veil but all of these steps to get there you know were equally important Um, and you know one of the sad things I'll I'll, I'll say it but 
this, two, these observations were done in the, you know, from parks. Mm. Um, and the sad thing to me is, looking back, um, you know, there were big telescopes in Australia, uh, the 74-inch, for example, that were never used. A big optical telescope. Bi- well, relatively yeah. big. Big enough. So 12, 3273 is 13th magnitude. Well, 12, 13th magnitude, yeah. You didn't need the 200-inch telescope. You didn't telescope. need the 200-inch <laughs> telescope. I mean, that's yeah, okay. the crazy thing. Yeah. It's the now, brightest quasar in the sky. Yeah. Now, one thing which we both circled around was Y3C273, which is a very strong radio source and a very bright optical object. Why that could have been identified, and this is what Dave, I think, was alluding to, that could have been and should have been identified with the accuracy that was being obtained with the, with the ground-based interferometers. You didn't need the occultation. And why that wasn't done, neither of us, nobody understands. No had anyone optically wondered what the jet was that was coming from the side? Of nobody the had noticed the jet until prior to... Schmidt looking at it carefully because of the uh, occultation position. Now, he claims, or he states, that when he went to take the spectrum, because of uh, his experience with radio galaxies, he thought the jet was the the optical counterpart and the galaxy. And he only took a spectrum of the stellar object to calibrate his, uh, his system. But he would have done it with a long slit spectrograph yeah. because all you do is you rotate it so that one part of the slit is on the star and the other part of the slit is on the jet. You know, that's the sort of thing people re- relatively routinely do now. So, you know, once again, it's, it's very easy. You can be right on, right on the edge of opening a door yeah, right. and still not do it just simply because you have preconceived ideas. Well, I'm glad we unveiled those, those last veils and quasars have been a great area of research for many years oh, since. So thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. I'll let you go to your session okay. today. Thank you. Many thanks. So there you are. A uh, bit of history for you. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Now, Stuart, thank you very much for doing that interview. And we've also got someone different doing some interviewing now. Uh, Roy Smith, who is one of the Jodrell Bank postdocs, went to the Illuminate Art event at Jodrell Bank Observatory and managed to grab a few people to hear what they had to say. What's your name? Rosie Green. How old are you? <laughs> Nine. Nine years old. Do you know what's going on here? We're making a rocket. You're making rockets? Wow. You're not joining in to make a rocket? Uh, no, not today. No, not tonight, I should say. Yeah. We're watching the children. The children are actually doing it. Well, the children are making the yeah. rockets. Yeah. Don't you think it's dangerous for the children to make wow. rockets? Well, I think it's on the... Uh, Soft tablet fuel, isn't it, I think? Uh, they're, they're not long-range <laughs> no, distance fuel. No, no, no. Well, let's see what happens then. Yeah, it'll be interesting. So there's my launch rail in the ground. Here's my little rocket. Okay, so tablet is in the lid. And then you've got to put the lid on very carefully, like that. All right, without getting the tablet wet. You've got to go like that, get it on your stick, and move backwards, because otherwise you're going to get sticky. Now, sometimes they take a while. <laughs> Depends how much water you put in. Come on! <laughs> oh no! It's leaking! I know why it's leaking, because you only put half the lid on. Let's see if the rockets from the children are more successful. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, right, everybody ready? Yeah. Okay, shake it up and stick it on your stick, upside down. Quickly, Upside down, have you done it? That's it? Right, Josh. Oh, I don't know. Is that yours over there? Mine didn't even make it. I've lost it. Come on, Melissa. 
We witnessed one that flew 10 meters far. It's truly our long distance rockets. Megan is now going to show us a proper rocket. When you fly a big rocket, you also have something called a payload. Now the payload... That's the astronaut, right? Could be an astronaut, yeah, for a really big rocket. But for smaller rockets, it's often something like a sensor that measures the air pressure or the temperature or the wind speed or something. This rocket is not quite so scientific. This rocket has a clanger as its payload. <laughs> That's a proper rocket. Standing next to me is Alistair Gunn, the person who organised this event. Alistair, can you tell me what is happening tonight? Well, tonight we'll be uh, projecting some uh, artwork onto the surface of the telescope. We've run a, a, a competition for people to do artwork related to the engineering involved with the telescope, the astronomy, space science and the history of the telescope. It's part of the celebrations of the 50th anniversary. How did you come up with the idea to combine art with astronomy? We're trying to, uh, this is sort of outreach work, we're trying to, to get our message across to the public. Uh, and one way of doing that is to sort of take it out of context and, and to combine it with something else. You know, kids, uh, you know, in general like to, to doodle and to do pictures. So we thought it was a good combination of trying to get them to think about the telescope by doing a picture of it, for example. Is there anything else going on tonight? Yes, there's various um, other activities that we've got here. We've got uh, planetarium shows, 3D theatre shows, um, tours of the observatory, that kind of thing. Is there a specific reason that you are keeping this event today? Well, we're running um, this event twice, uh, once in November, once in December. The, the, the November one is, um, is related to the, the Hindu festival Diwali, and that festival involves usually lights, um, and, and Christmas is also celebrated often with, with, with lights. And because we're, we're lighting the telescope up with artwork, we're sort of just sort of um, combining that with those themes, the Diwali theme and the Christmas theme. How many participants did you have? Um, I think for the for the two separate um, competitions, as it were, because we've got these two events, I think we had a total of about 200 entries. So tonight we have the Illuminate Art Competition, but we also have other events, such as a rocket demonstration and a planetarium. Have you all been at the planetarium just now? Yes. How was it? Great. We looked at all the constellations. And the main one was the Ryan. The re- it had the red star and the blue star. And that like mainly com- that mainly connects to all the other stars. So if you went one way, it would connect to one star and then the other way. There's the other ways. And do the stars tell stories? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah, did. There, there was loads of stories There was lots of stories. I've um, forgotten the names of the stars, but it was about... Um, there was um, one about um, a lion and a gnome. No, uh, um, thing. A man with a thingy sword. <laughs> this, um, this, this, this man and a woman had a, 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 a girl, and they, she was so beautiful, and they boasted about her. And the, the uh, god of the sea, I think it was, was really jealous about it. Uh, so he said, he said, he said he would destroy the kingdom if um, they didn't give, um, if they didn't give the, the daughter to the king. So um, they tied her to a rock and waited chained for the chained to the rock and waited for this um, sea monster to come. But this um, man was um, on the way back from um, cutting off Medusa's, Medusa's from head. the gorgons, one of the gorgons' head. He put it in a bag. 
and um, if um, if she saw if her eyes saw anybody, um, she would turn them into stone. And um, so he um, he said, "Why he changed them?" But she didn't explain. And the sea, the she sea, wouldn't um, explain. But she wouldn't explain. And the sea, uh, the man, the sea monster came, and then and the man quick, took out the head and creaking, and he showed the head because the head still had its powers. Oh, and out of the head popped him um, the the, the, um, the the flying horse, the flying horse, and. Um, and, uh, and 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 the, the sea monster was turned to stone and sank to the bottom of the sea. And he asked um, her mother and father, her, her father if he could marry the girl. And then he got married. To her. Enjoy the show. I'm now walking towards the main event. The level of entries in this competition were incredibly high, and the judges were impressed with the diverse and imaginative artwork submitted. Entries were required to reflect an element of the engineering aspects of astronomy and space research, space exploration and history of the Lovell Telescope. The combination of these themes and the theme of light reflecting the Diwali Festival were particularly encouraged. The winning entries were those in which the judges' opinion best reflected the subject of the competition. So the judging criteria were, and this is in no particular order, expression of the theme, innovation, suitability of the medium, fitness for a large-scale projection, and last but not least, the artistic quality. Now, each of tonight's artwork will be projected onto the telescope for approximately four minutes. The winner of the zero to five age group was Polly Nevin from Morley. Polly. Well done. So how would you describe this artwork? Inspirational, I think. Inspirational. Five-year-old, four-year-old? It's for the age group of zero to five. So what do you think it pictures? It's got more colours of the planets in. The planets, right? Yeah, yeah energy from the sun. The planets. In the zero to five category is Jacob Gore. Well done, Jacob. Hello, Jacob. Well done. Congratulations. You're going to say hello. Hello. <laughs> What's the title of your your, your artwork? Two. Well done, Jacob. Just collect your prize. So, looking at this artwork, it seems to be a picture of Jodrell Bank Telescope. And it is looking for Thunderbird 1 or 2. We're not entirely sure about that. So what do the children win? They win, well it depends how old they are. Different age groups have slightly different prizes, but they've all got books about the telescope, books about astronomy. So the younger ones have got books about an astronaut called Bob who goes to the moon and has all sorts of adventures in space. Bob who goes to the moon, sounds for all age groups. Well, that's for the little ones. Okay. Bob's ABC of space, that kind of thing. And what do the older children get? Okay, the older children get pocket star atlases, star finders, and more books about the telescope, and Sky at Night magazine. Everything to turn them into young astronomers. Hopefully, yes. The winner in the age 12 to 15 category is Katie Harris from Royton Crompton High School. Well done, Katie. Your, your artwork's entitled Cosmic Ray Particle. Well done. Do you want to say a few words? No. Well, I don't blame you. You can see the, the dark background. There's a fabulous splash of yellow colour goes right through the focus tower. It almost looks as if the aircraft warning light's part of the picture. I'll just go and have a talk with the technical staff 
Uh, might be a bit noisy there, though. Have you ever projected anything this big before? Yes. Uh, when I was here last time. Last time. <laughs> What was the event last time? Uh, the Space 50 event for the 50th yes. anniversary of the, of the dish. Yes. And we had a special event where we came down, and this was the first time we did this for, for this. So, yeah. How does it work? How do you illuminate a, ba- a dish that big? Uh, well, with these things, really. Yeah. Two um, 20,000 uh, lumen projectors doubled up to make 40,000 lumens. So do you have any problems with the fact that the dish is actually curved, not a flat screen? Yes, lots of problems. <laughs> so do you correct for that? Um, no, we're just quite precise about where we put things and how we, how we do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's always going to have some optical animalities, shall we say. It's always going to be a bit strange uh, on the corners, but the, the rest of it is fine. Yeah, it looks very good. Thank you. So the focal tower, is that a problem? Yes, of course. Of course. But it's not, when, did you notice the other picture before when they had the lady uh, just drawn the focal tower and it was on the focal tower. So <laughs> it's good. So sometimes it's part of the art. Yes, actually, of course. Well, I think it's part of the art. It looks, you know, there's two evil eyes in the centre of, of the image, you know. So, yeah, I, I like it. It's good. Thank you very much. No the winner of the adult category was Maria Atkinson of the University of South Australia. Now, for obvious reasons, Maria cannot be with us this evening, but she's asked me to read out the following statement. She says, Even though I am unable to attend in person, I'm delighted to participate in such an innovative event this evening and to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Lovell Telescope and the Diwali Festival of Light. My work, entitled Cosmic Maze, is an etching, which is a 16th century printmaking process and is part of a body of work that explores the garden and astronomy and the relationship between the land and the sky. Here, the garden maze superimposed upon a starry sky to represent the complexity of space, light and the continuation of human endeavour. My thanks to the University of Manchester, Jodrell Bank Observatory staff and to the University of South Australia for their support. Congratulations to all the artists and my best wishes to everyone for a wonderful evening. Thank you, Maria. What do you think about the art that is projected at the moment? I like it. I like, how <laughs> like she, it? Yeah, I like how she's used the technique that they used in that time period, just to reflect it now. I understand that it represents the complexity of the universe. Yeah. You can see that, can't you? Yeah, you can see through the use of colour and how she's used the print as well to spread out the different colours. Thank everyone for coming along this evening. We wish you a safe journey. Good night. Well, it was a beautiful evening. It gets cold very fast. And it's hard to keep the public here when it gets cold. But still, I believe people really enjoyed it. It was a really special event. Thanks, Roy. And now, just so that Nick has something to do in this issue of the Jodcast, here he is with Ed Boyce with Ask an Astronomer. Ask an Astronomer time, and this episode we have Dr. Edward Boyce from the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics answering your questions. So thank you very much again for coming along and answering questions. Thank you, Nick. It's good to be doing this again. First question is from Tom Hudson, and he writes, If Jupiter can be a stronger radio source than the Sun, how come we can't observe Jupiter-like extrasolar planets directly using radio telescopes? Right. It's true that Jupiter sometimes flares up and gives off bright radio emission, And at those times, Jupiter is as bright as the Sun at some radio frequencies. However, both Jupiter and the Sun are pretty faint radio sources compared to other things. Uh, The bright objects, the bright radio objects giving off lots of radio emission that we see with the telescopes, aren't normal stars or planets. Either they're much bigger, sort of clouds of plasma or hydrogen gas or dust that are as big as the solar system or even bigger. Or they have much stronger magnetic fields, so some types of young stars or collapsed dead stars 
or the disks around big black holes. The other problem is that Jupiter's bright emission is at very low frequencies, the lowest possible frequencies, that, radio frequencies that can get through the atmosphere. And those are lower than the frequencies that are mostly used by the big radio telescopes. So even when it's flaring, Jupiter's still a little bit too faint, and the frequency's too low. And with current instruments, we couldn't see Jupiter if it was around another star. Uh, there have been a few searches directed at uh, known extrasolar planets that have been detected with other techniques, and just in case they're a little bit brighter than Jupiter in the radio or emit at slightly higher frequencies, but so far they've come up negative. Hmm. So it's a combination of the fact that Jupiter is, although it's producing a lot of radio emission and can produce radio emission br- you know, brighter than the sun at radio frequencies, it's still, relatively speaking, a weak radio source. Yeah, it's still, relatively speaking, a weak radio source. Like The bright radio sources are things other than normal stars or planets going around those stars. There is a little bit of hope for the future because there are some, um, in the near future, there are some new low-frequency radio telescopes being built. And these include LOFAR in Europe, the Murchison Wide Field Array in Australia, and the Long Wavelength Array in the United States. So they'll be very sensitive down at frequencies of, you know, 30 to 100 megahertz, which is where, and then 100 to 200 megahertz, where you might get emission from a planet. And also they're going to monitor a big patch of the sky all at once, so that even if a planet only sends out bright radio emission for a short time, uh, that sort of continuous monitoring of a big area of sky could catch it if it was somewhere in that area of the sky. So, you know, those instruments uh, will be up and running at their sort of, well, some of them they're operating already with a few antennas, but they'll be up and running at full power within two to five years. And so there's, you know, a reasonable chance that they'll detect some extrasolar planets glowing in the radio if they're just a little bit brighter than Jupiter. Well, that's interesting. We should look forward to the results from, coming from those experiments. Yes. Now, the next question, again from Tom Hubbardson, is this. I believe that the refractive effect of the Earth's atmosphere is such that when the sun appears to be on an observer's horizon, geometrically it would actually be some fraction below. This must mean that the sun is able to illuminate over half of the Earth at any one time. So the question is, taking this refractive process into account, how much of the Earth's surface is illuminated at any one time? Right, so it's true that the sun can actually illuminate a little bit more than half of the Earth's surface, and there are actually two effects that contribute to that. Firstly, the sun isn't just a point source, it's actually spread out over half a degree on the sky. So even if the centre of the disk goes below the horizon, you still have the top of the disk poking up over the horizon and um, staying visible for you know a little bit longer. And also, as Tom says, refraction bends the light from the sun, and it actually moves the image a little bit higher in the sky. So... You know, if any bit of the sun seems to be sitting right on the horizon, its geometric position, the straight line to that position, would actually go down below the horizon. And the amount of that refraction is 34 arc minutes. So the geometric position of the sun is 34 arc minutes below the horizon if some bit of the sun appears to be on the horizon. So when you put those two effects together, uh, when we see the last bit of the sun setting on the horizon, the geometric position of the centre of the sun is actually 50 arc minutes uh, below the horizon, which is equivalent to five-sixths of a degree, so five over six of a degree. Mm. And so when you calculate the little bit of extra area of the Earth that gets illuminated by the sun because of that, uh, you find that the sun actually illuminates 50.7% of the Earth's surface at any time, not 50.0%. Right. That's fantastic. Thank you very much for, for working that out for us. Well, and of course, you, I suppose I'm not worrying about things like you know reflections off clouds or... <laughs> Those sorts of issues, because that would change. We'll keep it simple. Even, for the but even in terms of you know where you would get direct sunlight without clouds, it's that fraction. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that. 
Okay, now the next question is from Stephen Huiti, and he writes, We hear that when two galaxies pass through each other, that even though the stars themselves don't collide, the gas and dust does. Does this cause star formation, or is the gas and dust too hot? Momentum is conserved, and the average momentum of the gas may not match either galaxy, leaving it between them. So does this gas and dust, and any stars formed, leave both galaxies? So the answer is essentially yes to both questions. Uh, The collision of two galaxies does send shocks through their gas and dust, and when those shocks compress the gas, it often forms new stars. And sometimes the gas and the new stars end up between the two original galaxies or stretched out in some, you know, stream or long filament or loop outside the original galaxies. And those often show up quite differently because the new stars are younger and you get the very largest, youngest stars which send out a lot of blue light, and then the older stars in the original galaxy shine more in red light. So you can see a real offset between the new stars and the old stars. And there are some spectacular images of this from the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm. Next question is, the gas and dust in a galaxy forms the interstellar medium. Can the interstellar medium be replenished by stellar winds and supernovae? If so, how long does it take? Right, uh, so... The interstellar medium does get replenished by stellar winds and by supernovae. So stars send out little bits of matter throughout their lives, which is called the stellar wind. And then right at the end of their lives, when they explode a supernova, that throws off huge chunks of matter into the interstellar medium. So a lot of the star's material, even a majority for some stars, ends up back in the interstellar space where it came from. Uh, Because of nuclear fusion in the star, a lot of the original hydrogen and helium gets converted to heavier elements, stars enrich the ISM with more complex materials. Mm. Most of the mass loss from a star happens at the end of its life in that big supernova explosion. So the time scale to put enriched material into the interstellar medium is the star's lifetime. That's tens of millions of years for large stars and billions of years for solar mass stars. Mm. For stars that are much lighter than the sun, it would take hundreds of billions of years. So it hasn't happened yet. Right. So most most stars are replenishing the ISM with a constant, you know, gentle, stellar wind. And for some stars, at the end of their life, there is a spectacular explosion and it blows off a lot of matter out into the ISM. Yes, that's right. The last question is, can current computer modelling of these interactions take into account gas and dust? So, yes, computer simulations can handle gas and dust, but it takes a lot more time and computing power than if you don't mm-hmm. uh, worry about those effects. So sometimes the models will include parts of the interactions, the gas and dust interactions at small scales, and ignore it on large scales where it um, is dominated by the gravity. So an example of that might be if you have sort of separate clusters of galaxies, they only interact with each other by gravity. But then within those clusters, you have to worry about the complex gas and dust physics. So you only put in that non-gravitational physics when you have to. Yes, yes. Right. Well, thank you very much indeed for answering the questions uh, this episode. Oh, thank you, Nick. It was good to be in, and you're welcome. I hope to get to do it one, well, maybe one last time before I finish up here. <laughs> of course. So if anybody out there have, has got questions for uh, our astronomers, please do submit them at our website, www.jodcast.net. Thanks, Nick. And that unfortunately brings this issue and the issues for 2007 to an end. Thank you, everybody, for listening to us this year. And if you've enjoyed the Jodcast, do please let us know how we're doing via the feedback pages at www.jodcast.net. And we shall see you for our second birthday. 
at the very beginning of 2008. So until then, have a wonderful holiday, and we wish everybody a very merry Christmas and a happy new year. And bye, everybody. Bye.